This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. We're so glad that you can be with us. And if you have questions as you've been studying God's word or a particular challenge in your life or ministry or family that you would like biblical counsel on, well, by God's grace, we will do our best to try to help you and direct you to the scriptures. Rick, as always, it's great to be here in the new month of August, and we're glad to be a part of this ministry. It is a new month, Pastor, and uh, we have many, many emails that have come in, so let's get right to them. Sonia from Rankin, Georgia writes, I was wondering if there is a right way to share my faith. Does this involve quoting scriptures and going over the path of salvation every time? I ask because I recently had the opportunity to share my faith while on a plane flight, and I wonder if I did it properly. I was reading my Bible, and the man seated next to me started asking me questions about what I was reading. He told me that he wasn't religious, but respected those who were. He believed that religion is what people use to explain what they can't understand, and he gave the example of a solar eclipse. I explained to him that the Bible is so much more than that. It is the foreshadowing of Jesus' coming to earth to pay for our sin with his death and burial and by his resurrection, giving us a path to eternal life. This man then told me about an experience that he had after taking a drug. He said he felt that he was locked in a room and able to change the channels on a TV to watch whatever he wanted by just snapping his fingers, but that he couldn't speak to anyone. He couldn't communicate to anyone. He was just desolate and alone. I told him that this loneliness he experienced reminded me of what Jesus experienced on the cross. Not to say that Jesus would ever take drugs, but that Jesus was cut off and unable to communicate with God when he was sin on our behalf, and that the definition of suffering is the inability to communicate with God. Was this an accurate way for me to communicate the gospel to him? He seemed moved by our conversation. I happened to have a pocket Gideon Bible, which I gave to him. He said that was very meaningful to him. Was it proper for me to speak to him? Well, yes, uh, I think God obviously opened the door. He providentially set you next to that individual, and uh, he saw you reading God's Word. The Bible was curious, and a door opened wide open for you to share Christ with him. Now, to uh, scroll up there so I can see the question a little bit, Rick, um, your first question concerned, is there a right way to share my faith? And my response would be, well, yes and no. Uh, the faith that we share concerns the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So that's where you want to go. Listen, sometimes people are at different places in their walk with God, and you have to be discerning. And the more you share your faith, the more you're faithful to obey God and to pray for open doors. And that's something that we need to pray for as Christians. Uh, in Colossians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul writes the church at Colossae, uh, he makes a very interesting statement. He says, praying at the same time for us. So he's asking the Colossians to pray for for him and his missionary team. 
that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may be able to speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been prepared that I might make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So that's a powerful prayer, one, a prayer for opportunity. And we should really be praying for opportunities as we go through a day. There may be some individual that God would want us to speak with. I was in uh, Boston last week, and we were having a lunch in this particular restaurant. And as I was in there with some family members, I said, has kind of a Mideastern feel. And uh, it just said the right spot. So I said, well, let's go to lunch there, the right spot. And it didn't communicate through the name of the restaurant what kind of food they were serving. But just looking at the pictures on the wall and so forth, the lady who came up was, as it turns out, Egyptian. I said to her, where are you from? She said, Egypt. Oh, I said, are you Muslim or are you a Coptic Christian? She said, I'm a Coptic. Because uh, for the most part, those are the two main groups in Egypt. And so God opened a door uh, through lunch, through the conversation, being friendly. And at the end of the lunch hour, I asked her the diagnostic questions. I asked her son, and uh, God gave a simple way in which to communicate the faith. So people are at different places. I think for this gentleman, in light of what you've shared, in light of what he said, I might have started at a slightly different place with the issue of authority. And um, because he said, well, religion is uh, something that people use to explain things that they cannot understand. Well, um, that, that is true. But the question is, has God given us an authoritative understanding? And the answer is yes. So I would remind him that everything he believes, even the statements he had made, either made up or he read in a book or someone taught him, but just believing something does not make it true. Of course, you can believe two plus two equals five, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter how sincerely you believe it. And so the question I would have posited before him, is there an authoritative truth? And if there is, if God wrote only one book in the world, if he only wrote the Holy Bible, then I would... Um, then have a plumb line by which I could discern whether my beliefs are accurate or not. So I might not necessarily give him proofs for the authority of Scripture, though there are some short proofs that you can give. I wrote a book. It's on Amazon, How to Prove the Bible is True. Uh, You know, I go through five proofs to show that the Bible is the only book God wrote You could summarize even one of those and make a simple point. But sometimes you can just say, well, let's just say for the sake of argument, the Bible is true. Then the question becomes, what does it say in regards to these issues? And so you can start there. Now, depending on a person's exposure to the Bible, you might approach them differently. So is there any one right way to share? Well, the way Christ uh, confronted the woman at the well who had a lot of superstitious beliefs and uh, was rooted in really some pagan ideas along with some aspects of truth, was very different from the teacher of Israel, as he's called by Jesus, Nicodemus, in the, next, uh, in the prior chapter. His approach to Nicodemus is much different. He illustrates from Scripture because there's an assumption that he has a basic knowledge. When I first went into the ministry— in um, in 1978, 
uh, I would often give what we called back then an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. Peter, when he stands up on the day of Pentecost, assumes that these Jewish people have a basic knowledge of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament. And so he quotes from it. He assumes they're able to relate to the passages that he quotes because there's a certain basic knowledge that they have. And there used to be a time in America where you could start with, say, a a means like the four spiritual laws to share the gospel and say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and quote John 3.16 and John 10.10. And there was a certain, oh yeah, understanding of those things. Not anymore. Now 80% of the children in America don't even attend church. And I meet more and more of those who are now 18 and 20 years of age. And you ask them, well, you know, did Adam eat the fruit? And they say, I don't know. Tell me about Adam. Or uh, they they don't know anything. Uh, So we're living in a different world. So we need to do what we might call a Mars Hill presentation of the gospel, like Paul did. And when Paul presented the gospel, he really assumed nothing. He gave them a, a broader vision of what the critical issues are. We call this an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel. So the little booklet that I wrote, Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend, is really based on an Acts 17 presentation and that it starts with creation, why God created us, uh, that we're free moral agents made in his image, that um, he gave us a choice so we could express that free will. Man disobeyed God. He fell into sin. Here are the consequences. Here's how the cross relates to it. So it's a much broader picture, really scanning the whole of Scripture. And so it depends on the person that you're sharing with. But in the end, the message is the same. A person has to know that they are morally bankrupt and defiled in the sight of God, that their righteous deeds are as filthy rags, not their worst deeds, but their best deeds, because we're all sinners by nature, and the best we can offer God falls way short of the glory of God, and that it's impossible, therefore, through human merit and self-effort to please God, and you walk through why it is that good works cannot possibly save, and then why the cross is the solution to God's justice, to God's holiness, all a demonstration of God's love. So uh, the illustration you used, I think, was kind of interesting. You're, you're thinking, you're trying to take some uh, experience he had. He's in this room where he can change the channels, but he can't speak. And, you know, he, he's on some drug. And, of course, I might have said to him, well, you know, the Bible speaks about the illicit use of drugs. It's uh, the Greek word pharmakia that is translated sorcery. And that when you take drugs, you actually open yourself up to the demonic world. And you can open yourselves up to the great deceiver. And that's what Satan is. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. But you did try to relate that Christ was separated on the cross as a payment for sin, that he suffered physical and spiritual death. So that was good. But in the end, you want to be able to share the death, burial, and the resurrection. Sometimes you can't get that far. You're just planting a thought, a seed, and you see where God goes with it. Sometimes you're the 10th person in line of someone who has spoken to a person about the Lord, and it's the 11th person that is going to turn the key 
that's going to bring them into the kingdom of God? Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a caller who's waiting. Indeed we do. Yes, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on the Bible line, as does this live caller, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Pastor Rogi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. How can we help today? Um, so I had a question, um, a couple of questions about uh, Pastor John MacArthur. Okay. Um, I know that you broadcast his uh, radio ministry on your um, station. Yes. Um, so my first question is, Pastor MacArthur openly declares that he is a five-point Calvinist or new Calvinist. Um, does Calvinism line up, line up with the Bible? Well, it's a good question. So let me take that question, and we'll. You probably it sounds like you have a whole list of questions, but let me let me just take that one to start. the The term Calvinist is a very broad term. Um, it's referring not just to the realm of salvation, which is when most people use the term Calvinist, they are saying, "Well, I believe what John Calvin." taught that God chooses some people to go to heaven and he chooses other people to go to hell. Um, And so that's most people's view of Calvinism, but that's not really Calvin's view of Calvinism. And when you read the Institutes, which are, you know, a combination of five books, you can usually buy it in two volumes. It's really a summary of what John Calvin taught and embraced. With that said, it's a whole system of theology that affects every realm of truth. Like he had a certain view of the church, and he believed that the church was the new Israel, and that because the church was the new Israel, that the city of Geneva needed to be run like a theocracy. And so, for instance, they put to death a man named Michael Silveltis for theological heresy and had him burned at the stake. Uh, look, that was a theocracy under Israel, and the church is not the new Israel, and John MacArthur does not embrace the thought that the church is the new Israel. John Calvin did. John MacArthur did not. Uh, John Calvin uh, took uh, infant baptism, and he redefined it from the Roman Catholic background that he had been raised in. In the Roman Church, it says that baptism is the sacrament that washes away original sin and instills salvation to the soul. Baltimore Catechism, direct quote. Um, Calvin taught that no baptism was a covenant between the parents with the hope and desire that the parents would bring this child up in the ways of the Lord. And he paralleled it in the Institutes to circumcision where the first generation of adult men were circumcised and then in obedience to what God commanded children on the eighth day. The only problem with that comparison where he would not deny that the early Christians were all adults and believers who were baptized, Um, but after that, uh, we should baptize our little infants to bring them into the covenant. God makes no such command in Scripture. In fact, in Scripture, God defies that, and he distinguishes Uh, who can be baptized by saying you must first believe. Believe and then be baptized is the teaching. Man reversed it about three centuries later, and we began to baptize little infants with different meanings behind it. Luther's meaning of infant baptism was different from Calvin's, um, but nonetheless, we put baptism before faith, and I don't think the New Testament does it, and that's why 
uh, for the most part in the history of the church amongst what we would call born-again Christians, infant baptism has already always been a minority view. But that's a tenet of the ecclesiology, the teaching of the church in Calvinism. Does John MacArthur believe that? Absolutely not. So I could tick down a list of things where John MacArthur totally disagrees with John Calvin. Now, was John Calvin a five-point Calvinist? I don't think so. Now, certainly his followers were. The five points of Calvinism in reference to the doctrine of salvation are summarized in the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity. Yes, the Bible teaches total depravity, that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, that he has no capacity in and of himself to pull himself up by his own bootstraps to somehow come to faith on his own. So God must make the first move, but he does. God makes the first move. He shouts his existence through creation and conscience. He sent the Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. So God takes the first move um, because man is totally depraved. Unconditional election, I don't buy it, that God, uh, based purely on his sovereign choice, chose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. Um, I just don't see that. Limited atonement, now that's a point that even Calvin didn't believe. His followers embraced it, that the death of Jesus, they would argue, was limited not to uh, was limited only to the elect that Jesus did not die for everyone, but only for believers. And that's why when you hear a Calvinist, at least who embraces limited atonement, uh, when you hear a Calvinist uh, preach the gospel, they'll do it in very couch terms. Like if uh, you will repent and believe, then Christ has died for you or Christ died for those who will repent and believe. And in other words, they are saying very carefully that Christ didn't die for everyone, but just for those who would truly exercise genuine faith. I don't believe that. I have a whole course on soteriology where we cover why the Bible does not teach limited um, atonement or what some would call a particular atonement. Then there's irresistible grace. Well, that's a half-truth. There is a sense in which if we are responding to what we know and we, um, you know, respond to general revelation in the gospel, we can reach a point in our life where indeed the grace of God is irresistible. And so if you look at God's golden chain of salvation that I referred to last Sunday in Romans chapter 8, he makes an interesting statement here. And he says, um, those whom God called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. So you discover that the calling of God happens before the justification of God. And so it is true that there's a point in a person's life when they are responding to the gospel, they are going to come to, to faith. But that does not mean that man does not have a free will and that man cannot resist the grace of God. When Peter, uh, excuse me, when Stephen uh, stood up you know, in, uh, outside of the city of Jerusalem and he gives a, a powerful sermon in Acts 7, if you, if you want to know what the highlights are of the Old Testament, just read and study all the references to Acts that are found in Acts 7, 
and you will have a feel for what the whole Old Testament is about. And when he comes to the end of that sermon, really proving that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he is the Messiah, he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. So a person can resist the Holy Spirit. He can say no to Christ. And then P is perseverance of the saints, that once a person is saved, is saved forever. But the reformers meant more than that by perseverance of the saints. They also included that genuine perseverance expressed itself in a changed life, that a person would show the evidences of conversion. And that is certainly one aspect of of perseverance. And so um, Jesus can make a very, very similar statement. He says at that time, he's speaking of the time of the great tribulation. He's not dealing with church saints, but tribulation saints. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. This is the coming apostasy. There's always been apostasy in the church. And we see a growing apostasy now, even amongst evangelicals who are departing from the historical faith. Um, But he's talking about the apostasy of all apostasies. When the Antichrist comes and all these nominal Christians will renounce the Christian faith and embrace the Antichrist. And so he says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, Matthew 24, 11. Then he says, because lawlessness, sin is lawlessness, John says in 1 John, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So this is an aspect of perseverance. You're not saved by endurance. You're not saved by perseverance. But the one who is saved will endure. He will persevere. He will never renounce Christ. And certainly passages like 1 John two nineteen teach that. So when you talk to some people and they say they're a Calvinist, they may mean I'm a two-point Calvinist, I'm a three-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist, or I'm a five-point Calvinist. Now, um, certainly I would say at the minimum I'm a three-point Calvinist, but I don't like to use the word Calvinist in that I don't think that, um, you know, a lot of the things that John Calvin taught were accurate. But do I believe in total depravity? Absolutely. Man is totally depraved. I can't take credit for any of my salvation. It's not something I figured out by reading some book on apologetics or studying the Bible on my own. Uh, The first move was with God. God, we love God, John will say, because he first loved us. I don't believe in unconditional election. I believe it was conditioned. It was conditioned on God's foreknowledge. And so when you look at the word foreknowledge, uh, those whom God foreknew, um, he he chose. On what basis? Well, God in eternity past knew because he's omniscient who would respond to the truth of the gospel and who would not. And so certainly the doctrine of election is plainly taught. You cannot say you're a biblical Christian and not believe in the doctrine of election. That's not the issue. The issue is on what basis does God elect? And in some Calvinist camps, they would say, well, God created the world and he created some people for destruction and he created other people for salvation to display his attributes. That's double predestination. 
And other Calvinists would say, well, God created man, man fell, and all are headed towards destruction, but God then just rescues a select few as he chooses out of that mass of humanity. And so you had guys um, in the history of the church who taught that, look, uh, they would say the amazing thing is not that God chose me, but that he would choose any that he would rescue me or any because we all deserve wrath. Well, we all deserve wrath. The question is, does God really love the whole world? So I don't believe in unconditional election. I believe election is conditioned on God's foreknowledge, which is based on his prior knowledge of knowing how man will respond. Uh, Calvinists would take issue with that. But the word prognosco is used in a number of places in the New Testament where indisputably, it means prior knowledge. Um, and I could illustrate that. I won't go through it this morning. Um, T-U-L, limited atonement. No, I reject that. Christ died for all. His death is not only a basis for our salvation, it's also a basis for condemnation. No one will be able to say in the judgment, well, God, even if I wanted to believe, there is no provision made for me. And so the death of Christ is not only a provision for those who will believe and therefore are forgiven, but it's also a basis of condemnation. He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Um, Again, uh, limited atonement, T-U-L-I, irresistible grace. Again, it depends what you mean. There is a point in a person's life when they respond to the grace of God that it becomes irresistible that what God started it he'll complete all the way to the end and so perseverance of the saints so um, I suppose I'm a 3.5 point Calvinist John MacArthur it appears in recent years has moved into the he was always a four-point Calvinist but it appears he's moved into the uh, doctrine of limited redemption. Do I think he's wrong on that? Yes. Just like I think he's wrong to say that tithing has no application for today. Yeah, I, th- I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong by saying that um, deacons can also include women. Now, in fairness to him, uh, in his doctrine of deaconesses, uh, his definition of a deacon is very, very different from the way it is, say, in the average Southern Baptist church. Uh, but I don't think there's a formal office of deaconess uh, as he would teach. So can you find two pastors who agree on everything? No. Um, But on all the critical issues, John MacArthur is straight as an arrow, uh, so I would affirm him as a brother in Christ. He hasn't compromised. He's not afraid to speak of difficult things, and that's why we play him on our station. Let's go to the next question. Okay. Uh, Did you have another question, caller? She has a whole system of questions because <clears throat> she sent me an email, oh. and I told her one question at a time. Ah, all right. All very right. good. Well, we do have another live caller standing by. That's uh, Ant- uh, Alberto from Savannah. How are you, Alberto? Well, good morning, Rick Moore-Porchner and Dr. Carl Brogy. I got a question. Uh, uh, I'm watching a video by Daniel you know, B. Wallace. Talk about Bible translations, and he said he recommends the Net Bible as the most accurate translation, and second place the NIV, and because of their readability, accuracy, and uh, beauty, that elegance. Because uh, he recommends that every believer should carry a, have a King James Bible, 
And also the ESV also is good because of its elegance. Now, he said the NSSB, as a lot of the evangelicals like, that, that it's more of a formal translation. It's not much, not much of a functional translation. So it's, it's like a first pass, considered like a pony. So, like example, he says like the, the Net Bible is more going back to the original meaning of the text. You know, so, like example, like some say like, like the, the word, in the Greek means polis city, but not uh, most uh, police translated translated city. But in reality, that's not a word. It's a city, it's a town. So it has to be like if it's only thirty thousand or more, it's considered a city. Or if it doesn't pay taxes to the governor, I mean to the wherever, it's a free city. Right. So I know where you're going. Yeah. Sure. Thirty thousand. Okay. So let me see if I can comment. So um, there are different. Uh, ways in which you can approach Bible translation. So if you were to put a Bible translation on a scale, on one side of the scale, you would have the most literal Bible that would be an interlinear Bible, an interlinear Bible. And an interlinear Bible, and you can pull these up, I'm sure, on the internet, uh, what they do is they, they take the Greek text and then right underneath, they put the English translation. Um, and so you see it exactly as it is laid out. And so for someone who doesn't read Greek, uh, this will be beneficial to them and that they can at least see how the text unfolds. The, the problem with that, the reason we don't translate the Bible that way is because take Greek, for instance, and the Bible is written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Um, word order is very different than in English. In English, we typically have subject, verb, object. You can have the object as the first word. You can have the verb as the first word. And so they changed word order typically for emphasis, uh, to underscore a truth, uh, what we might say to highlight something, to pound the pulpit. And so to take uh, the Bible saying the Greek New Testament and translate it word for word into English, most of it wouldn't make any sense to us. It would be very difficult to read. So we take it from the original language and we put it in the receptor language using the rules of grammar as it relates to that particular language. Now, there are other languages in the world that are what we call case languages, and they follow the way Greeks think And so their translation would be very similar to the Greek New Testament in terms of word order because they do some of the same things that the Greeks do. But with um, English translations, that would be the most literal. And so people don't bring an interlinear Bible to church because, again, it wouldn't be understandable. And then there's a couple of approaches in terms of how to translate the Bible, you can translate thought for thought, or you can translate word for word. And so the New American Standard translates as best they can word for word. Uh, They go through the text, and they do very little interpretation. Some would say, well, that's a little more wooden, makes it a little more difficult to understand, Um, but they want to give it to you exactly as God wrote it. And so there's uh, formal equivalence and there's dynamic equivalence. And a formal equivalent translation would be like the King James or the New American Standard or even the ESV. 
Um, the NIV would be more of a dynamic equivalent where they are not only translating the Greek text into English, but they're also sometimes doing a little bit of interpretation for you without italicizing it. So like the New American Standard 2020, when it says brethren, uh, historically that has always meant in most English readers' minds, brothers and sisters, that brethren is a generic term. So in the new New American Standard, it says brothers, and then in italics it says and sisters, because it's implied. But since and sisters is not in the Greek text, they put it in italics. And italics, of course, in an English Bible is not italics in traditional English literature that sometimes are a place for emphasis or to show maybe a, a different language that's being used. In the Bible, when italics are used, it's showing words that are not in the original but are certainly implied in the original. Well, what the NIV does, the NIV came out in 1984, and for many people, uh, this was a revolutionary translation in that it did read a little smoother than even the 1978 edition of the NAS that went back to a, a translation in the 50s that went back to the American Standard Version of 1901. Again, here's the challenge. God's Word is static. It never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But language does change. So, you know, the King James, when people say, well, I like the old King James, I like the 1611, they couldn't read the 1611 unless maybe they had an advanced English degree. It would be very difficult for most people. What they're actually reading is the fifth revision of the King James, the 1738, where there's actually over 100,000 changes between the 1611 and the 1738 because our English language was changing so fast. So when I read from Philippians out of the old King James, be careful for nothing. Look, when I pull out on the highway that's in front of this church and go home tonight, I'm going to be very careful. I'm going to look both ways before I pull out. What do you mean be careful for nothing? Well, a newer translation like the New King James or the NASB or other translations might say be anxious for nothing or be worried about nothing. But understand the word worried and anxious didn't exist in 17th century English. And so the way you said it was be careful for nothing. Well, that might miscommunicate today. And then there's a lot of archaic words that we never use. Like if I use the word lasciviousness, I'd say the average American wouldn't know what that word meant. They'd have to go to an unabridged dictionary to look it up. Uh, but it means sensuality. And so we use terms that try to communicate. The challenge with the NIV is they, it, it's a little more fluid. And so, for instance, if you had the NASB and the NIV side by side, and you were reading Romans chapter 8, it's talking about the Spirit of God, and then in the next verse it says, He. And if you were reading the NAS, you'd say, well, who's the He? Oh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit. Which I think is helpful, because it reminds you that God doesn't say it, because the Holy Spirit is not a force or a thing. It's He. He's a person. But the NIV doesn't say he, it says the spirit. So what have they done? Well, the Greek text doesn't say the spirit, te pneumatos, it says he. 
And so they've interpreted it for you. They've interpreted what God has plainly said. Um, is that wrong? Well, no, but it is an interpretation. Now, more recently, the NIV in 2011 came out with a newer translation. Uh, and I should say parenthetically, before that translation came out in 2011, came out in 2010 on computer and then 2011 in paper, there was a translation that Zondervan put forth called the TNIV, today's new English uh, translation, version, and so new international version, today's new international version. The problem with it is that when they had plans to unfold it, they said they were going to create a gender-neutral Bible because they didn't want to use masculine terms that might be offensive to the culture that we lived in. Well, over 100 Christian organizations from around the United States uh, created a document, said this is abusive to God's word. This will change the meaning of God's word. We're not to allow the culture to influence the way we translate God's word. And they approached Zondervan and they promised they would not produce this translation. And it was all spearheaded by Dr. James Dobson, whom many of you listen to on this radio station. The problem is, is when they left that meeting, though they signed a document saying they would not do it, they went out and did it anyway, and three years later, to people's utter shock, they released today's New International Version, and they made a gender-neutral Bible. Well, when the NIV came out in 2011 in paper, they took the NIV 84 and the TNIV, and they blended the two together. And so if there's a masculine pronoun referring to he, a a male, they may change it to they. Well, that changes the meaning of the text. And if you want to understand the differences in English translations, I have a course. It's not for the faint of heart. It's over 500 pages long of notes. But section six is on how we got our English Bible. And I go through all the various English translations and their differences and so forth. And I compare the differences and I look at the NIV, the new, new NIV that came out. So this spurred a new movement where all these evangelicals who had been using the NIV then went to the ESV. But I will say traditionally, historically, those that use the NIV were not typically Bible expositors where they taught the text verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. Um, And so they used a little more fluid translation. And I used to tell people before the NIV came out in 2011, if maybe you just want to sit down and read through a book of the Bible in one sitting, um, the NIV 84 might be helpful to you. But now if I quote the NIV, I always specifically say NIV 84 because I don't want to give endorsement to their new translation, which in my view has altered the text that has basically kowtowed to this whole new movement in the church in evangelicalism where we are reversing roles or neutralizing male headship in the church and the family, and we want to make everything acceptable. The Net Bible is a good translation. It was done by a lot of my friends that I went to Dallas Seminary with. And uh, the, initially, it was only available on computer online. And then they later put it on paper. But um, what they're always doing is updating because they have like these notes where 
you know, you can click on a word and it might give you the etymology of the word or the historical significance of the word or the cultural background behind the word. And it, it's kind of a built-in running commentary that they're constantly adding notes to. Um, in my view, the NASB is still the gold standard. It's the one that has been used by Bible expositors uh, in this country since the 1950s. Men who teach the Bible verse by verse by verse. And so I've been blessed to study the scriptures in the original languages. I had, I had um, uh, four years of Greek study and three years of Hebrew and very intensive theological training. And so I appreciate the New American Standard and I continue to use it. Um, I might not agree with everything that they've done in the 2020 edition, but overall, I think it's still the most accurate translation that's available to the English tongue. Appreciate your question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Gloria M. writes, a friend of mine pointed out that there is a locust tree in the Middle East, a type of berry tree. And so John the Baptist actually consumed fruit and honey instead of grasshopper type stuff and honey. What are your thoughts about this? Well, it, it is interesting, and when I go to Israel, I'll point out uh, what's called a locust tree, and I'll pull a pod off, and when the pods dry, they turn brown, and I'll have uh, sometimes people open them up. There's one actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's a kind of a private section that we always go to that we pay for in advance to rent. It's all part of the garden, but there's one section that's privately owned. So it's a much quieter spot, and there's not thousands of people there, and there's usually just one or two groups in it at a time, so you can talk and preach. And right there, there's a locust tree, and I'll pull down one of these. It looks like a long pod that's about eight inches long, and in it are what you might call little peas. And if you break it open and you chew on one of those pods... It tastes like chocolate, and um, sometimes the Arabs will eat it for energy when they're out in the fields and working. doesn't taste that way when it's um, still green. You don't want to eat a green pecan. You want to wait till it's uh, dried out and its husk is dropped, and you want to wait until these things turn brown. Is it possible that John the Baptist was eating those in honey? Very possible. Is it possible that he was eating literal locusts? very possible. So um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thought, um, and I wouldn't be dogmatic uh, that he was eating literal locusts. He could have been eating these pods that are also called locust trees and carry the same Hebrew word. So good question. All Let's right. go to the next one. Sarah from Naples, Florida writes, my husband and I are on two different stages of our spiritual walk with the Lord. We recently accepted Christ as our Savior in the past couple of years. However, I'm finding difficulty navigating my walk with the Lord and navigating my marriage in a way that honors God. For example, my husband does not think he needs to tithe 10%. I do. We have one sole income for our household as I stay home to raise our children. Although I've expressed my concerns with the feeling of being disobedient by not properly tithing, I don't know what to do. Uh, my husband is not willing to read scripture or listen to sermons about tithing. Would it be crossing the line to take it upon myself to tithe with our money, knowing it may upset my husband? I'm trying to be submissive and, under and an understanding wife, but I don't want to disobey my creator. 
Is this a matter of prayer and patience? How can I go about this? Well, Sarah from Naples, it's really a great question. And it often comes when there's a mixed marriage. You're saying that you're both believers, but maybe your husband hasn't grown that much. And of course, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And tithing is really ultimately a faith issue. Uh, The scripture typically says, don't test me. In fact, in Malachi, God gives a warning not to test him. But in the same prophet, he also says, but test me now in this, saith the Lord. And uh, see if I won't open for you the windows of heaven when you bring a tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse today, of course, being the local assembly. With that said, it is a faith issue. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so when people come to faith in Christ and they hear about tithing, logically, it doesn't make sense. If you have 10 tenths of your income and you give one tenth to the Lord, which is what the word tithe means, it's a mathematical term. I know we use it very loosely today and someone gives $5 and they say, well, here's my tithe. And what they mean is $5. Well, it is a tithe if they made $50 that week, then a tithe of $50 would be five dollars but if they made a thousand dollars that week a tithe would be a hundred dollars so logically it doesn't make sense that you will do better by giving one tenth to the lord um rather than keeping all ten tenths and working with that but i'm telling you god says test me now on this and um, look you can not only give a tithe as you grow in christ God will often have you give beyond the tithe. That's called an offering in Scripture. And so tithing is a reminder to me. It's not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. And so there are times when God would have us to give more than 10% to give an offering. So first, to answer your question, I would say you want to do anything that you can to help your husband to grow. Dr. Billy Graham, when he was alive, said that in his judgment, 90 to 95% of the genuine Christians in America have stayed baby Christians. They've never really grown up in their faith. And so a baby is going to be much less trusting of the Lord than a growing, maturing Christian. And so there are certain biblical truths that someone has to get a handle on if they're going to be a growing, maturing Christian. Uh, We accomplish this at Community Bible Church through our discovery class. And so some people who became Christians last Sunday night, it made the pastor, I said, you need to next Sunday go into the next room right from the one we're sitting in. And we have a 45-week course. Sometimes it takes longer because of the amount of questions that people present. But it's structured so you can start any week you want. You could walk in at week 10, go weeks 10 to 45, 1 to 9, and get the whole shebang. And what it does is it walks you through the basic principles of the faith. And I will meet Christians who come to our church, sometimes who've been Christians 20 or 30 years, and it's obvious that they are still babies in Christ. They have never grown and matured in their faith. And I'll encourage them to go to the discovery class because it's going to give them that foundation. So that's going to be maybe a source that can move your husband. And by the way, this is online It's called Basic Discipleship, and 18 of the weeks are up there right now. I'm hoping pretty shortly here, maybe in early September, to add a few more weeks to it on the next uh, handout. But if you go through these, you will get a foundation. 
with that said, you are under your husband's leadership. And so when a lady writes me and she says, well, my husband's an unbeliever, should I tie their income behind his back? And I would say, no, you're under his leadership. And what God expects you to do is to obey what he entrusts to you. So if your husband says, honey, here's a, here's a hundred dollars for you to do whatever you want to do with, then you tithe off of that. Or if you're relative sends you a hundred dollar birthday present, you tithe off of that. You tithe off of the cash, so to speak, that God puts in your hand and you obey God as best you know how to obey God and you trust God with your husband. But hopefully your husband has more than just an intellectual knowledge of Christ, but he's genuinely been saved and regenerated. And sometimes people are unwilling to tithe because they really haven't been born again. They haven't been regenerated in the spirit. They have a, uh, a superficial knowledge of the cross that has never really genuinely touched the heart. But it, it can be a sign of conversion, but most of the time it's a sign of spiritual growth and People will tell you, well, I don't tithe to the church, but I tithe. And the reality is they don't. They're just lying. And, um, you know, uh, it's an issue of faith. And I'll tell you, it's not a silver bullet because it works in conjunction with other things. You, You have to study the whole package of what God says on finances. So you can't expect him to bless your finances if you're racking up stuff on credit cards because you don't want to wait on God and you want something right now. And so you have to know what God says about debt, what God says about saving, what God says about giving. And I have a whole course on this uh, on biblical finances that's available to search the scriptures. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Adora from Beaufort writes, My friend and I have felt the need to do an in-depth study of the book of Isaiah, but we haven't been able to find one. If you know of any, would you please let me know? Yeah, so Isaiah is a great prophet uh, to understand. I've, I've been studying Isaiah 53 uh, for the last six months. I decided I'd spend a couple days in it, and I actually it's been like eight months, and I have like a 350-page commentary I've written on Isaiah 53, and I'm almost done. I'm on my last verse uh, of the 53rd chapter. Really, that section starts in chapter uh, 52, um, but a couple of uh, books that you might want to consider. One is I always encourage people to consider the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, that's a good starting place in that it's a, a compilation of Old Testament books and New Testament books into two volumes. And so the Old Testament volume is much thicker, but it, since it's been in print since uh, about 1984, 85, um, you can find a used copy probably online for $20 for the, for the set, where if you go to buy it new, it's going to be like $200. But what it does is unlike most one-volume commentaries in the Bible that just tell you what's really plain and obvious that anyone can pretty much figure out, is it doesn't deal with the obvious. It tends to focus more on the more obscure things, the more difficult things that someone might not initially pick up. And so if Jesus is referencing the Queen of the South, and you're new to the Bible, you might say, well, who is the queen of the South? And so they might make a comment on that, and 
uh, index you to some Old Testament passages where she came and visited Solomon. Um, so the good thing about the, their Old Testament volume, like John Martin, uh, he was a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary. He did the one on Isaiah. And then at the end of it, there was a bibliography that will give you some suggested commentaries for more in-depth reading. So, for instance, um, I think maybe he has 40 or 50 pages on Isaiah, which is obviously one of the longer books in the Old Testament, um, you know, of commentary, but he might uh, reference in the end of the bibliography a three-volume series called the Book of Isaiah by, by Young, which may be very helpful to you. Uh, Lazo brothers put out a book in the 1950s. It's called studies in Isaiah by an author named Jennings. And again, some people will approach Isaiah differently, especially the latter chapters were because they don't believe that God will literally fulfill the promises to Israel. They look at the latter chapters of Isaiah as a description of heaven where it's really not. It's a description of the coming kingdom uh, but anything on Lazo Brothers is going to be premillennial in its theology. And Frank Gabalian, uh, he was the uh, supervisory author of uh, the section um, on Isaiah. It's called Exp- uh, Exposition, the Expositor's Bible Commentary. And uh, there is a volume, I don't remember what number it is, but it covers like I- Isaiah and then it covers. Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. So that might be a helpful resource as well. So I hope maybe that will get you started. But a good place is always maybe begin with uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary because you'll get a great conservative bibliography at the end of each one. Well, it uh, is the beginning of August, as you said, Pastor, and things are beginning to um, start up again here at uh, Community Bible Church, aren't they? Yes, they are. So uh, we invite you out to Wednesday night. Our children's choirs are being launched. What a great way to change the lives of your children by putting godly music and not only learning the music, but learning the definitions behind the words that they are singing as they study scripture with the songs and even memorize scripture. So that starts tomorrow night at 630 here at Community Bible Church. We'll also have a a missionary pastor speaking from a foreign country where you'll get to hear him and uh, be able to ask him questions as well. Uh, Our Sunday schools are wide open for children and our Awana Bible Club, the largest in the state, will start up, God willing, in September. Thanks for joining us today on The Bible Line. May you walk closely with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.